0: good morning. It's great to be together today. Well, growing up in Missouri, I never actually saw the ocean until I was a teenager. You're supposed to make sympathy noises or something there. I don't know. You like the ocean down here, right? Uh, We went, and uh, I was so excited to be able to surf, which is not physically possible for my body. So I did the next best thing, as every teenager would do, and I rented a, a little body board and uh, began that process of trying to ride waves in. Had a great time. It was a blast. <clears throat> but as minutes passed, I realized that when I looked up back to the shoreline, my family was not there, that I had drifted naturally with the current. If you've been in the ocean, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just naturally drift down the shoreline. I had drifted hundreds and hundreds of yards down. I was a little concerned with how far I had gone. I didn't realize it until my mom had come by waving her arms and shouting like every good mom would want to do to embarrass a teenager in front of an entire beach full of people. But I had never set out that day to drift much further than where I belonged, from where I started. In our text of Galatians chapter 3, Paul is going to identify for us five different types of questions. Five types of questions that you and I ought to be able to learn and to be equipped as God has called us as family in Christ to pursue Disciples who drift. Remember the church in Galatia is drifting because of this false teaching that's that's coming in, or these false practices, especially that are coming in, and they're causing them to add to the goodness of the beautiful truth of the gospel we discussed last week. That is that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And as they drift, you and I are charged as believers to pursue one another. This is our responsibility. This is our calling together. So I want to do something so this becomes more personal as it would have been for the church in Galatia. I'm going to ask if you would take your eyes uh, off of me and and begin to scan the room. I want you to make eye contact the best you can with uh, the people sitting around you. And and I'm not talking about the people that are literally sitting beside you. Go further. Look over. Try and make eye contact with people around you. I mean, other sections, left side and right side, uniting together. It's a beautiful picture. The Lord has given you and I responsibilities of members of this congregation, part of this congregation, to pursue one another should we drift. Warning for this text is clear. You and I, not a single one of us, is immune to drifting away from the gospel. And every one of us has a responsibility. You have a responsibility to the people that you just made eye contact with to pursue should they be- drift from the gospel and their beliefs or in their lifestyle, we are called to pursue one another passionately and consistently if we drift away from the gospel. So, my hope for us this morning is that we will become better equipped at doing so, better equipped, more comfortable, and the right types of questions to ask when disciples begin to drift. And likewise, when we begin to drift, to be able to reflect on these five types of questions before the Lord, that the Lord would convict us in our answers of these so that we too will find ourselves. Realigned back where we're supposed to be rather than drifting down the coast. So, as you have your Bibles, look over to, to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, take a Pewback Bible in front of you. If you literally do not own a Bible, you can keep that Bible as our gift to you this morning. But as we look, first and foremost, we notice this first question that you and I are called to ask drifting disciples. We're to ask questions that clarify who is persuading that, that drifting disciple. Notice in verse 1, the very first few words, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? O foolish Galatians, foolish. He's not insulting their intellect. He's critiquing the reality just like a loving parent would for their child that was making reckless decisions. They were making decisions that were threatening their future, were threatening their life. Foolishness, love in the tone foolishness. Do not do that. Perhaps you can relate to that. But it's something that actually comes up repeatedly. You can write down Luke 24. We're not going to flip there, but I want to summarize it for us. Luke 24, you can write down that reference. It's that road to Emmaus scene because Jesus says the same thing to the two individuals who are summarizing. Remember, Jesus has already been crucified, died, and rose again. And in his resurrected body, he's walking with these two men on the road to Emmaus. As he's walking with them, he asks them to summarize, hey, what's happened and what's going on? They catch him up, but they do not believe that Jesus is resurrected. They're talking about all the commotion. They're even saying things like, do you live under a rock? How do you not know about what's going on? And Jesus responds to them, and he says these words. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Oh, foolish ones, none of us in this room are freed from the reality of foolish decisions that we make. What question does Paul specifically ask? He says, who has bewitched you? Bewitched, if you're like me, the only thing that comes into your mind is a TV show that happened well before you were born. And for many of you, you're thinking it was a show well after you were born, okay? Bewitched, not a very popular word. It's not a very popular word in the Bible either. It's only used here in the New Testament. Every translation uses bewitched that I could find except for the NIV, which chooses to go uh, or with uh, this idea of being hypnotized. That's the Holman, not the NIV. It goes with the idea of being hypnotized. Now, In my summary, I called this as questions that clarify who is persuading them. And I must confess to you, the reality is Paul's language here is much stronger than the word persuaded you. He is clouding and he is identifying the types of people and what's happening with those people that are bewitching the Galatians. He's attacking their character ultimately. He's saying what they're doing to you, they're tricking you. Open your eyes, they're taking advantage of you. He's saying, do you remember your life was built upon the rock? In Matthew 7, Jesus says, the wise person builds their life upon the rock, which means this, they hear the word of Christ, and they do it. They hear it, and they do it, and they build their life on this rock, and the storms come, the waters rise, it beats against that house, but but it stands. Jesus says, the foolish man or woman, they build their life upon the sand. So when the storms come, they beat against that house, all these things happen, and yet the house, of course, collapses. Paul's identifying for the Galatians is you built your life. Your faith is founded on the rock of the gospel. And these others are coming along and they're escorting you like down an aisle for a wedding. These false teachers are escorting you. They're bewitching you to a place you do not want to be, a life upon the sand. That's the warning that he gives them. And I think the application for us is abundantly clear. Number one, it should give us graciousness as we interact with those who have drifted from the gospel. Or they've drifted from a local disciple making church fellowship. We shouldn't come at that aggressively or angrily. We should come at that with compassion. They've drifted. Like I drifted down the... I didn't intend to do that. But many people will drift away from the gospel. I have talked to so many people in my life when I ask them their church background. it's just an easy question. It's not threatening at all to ask them, do you have a church home? It's one of the easiest questions you can ever ask somebody. It's not threatening at all. But I have talked to so many people, so many people in our own community here that have said, well, I used to go to church, but when I moved here, I just started getting busy, or I got a new job, and I started getting busy, and really I haven't been for I don't know, consistently for several years. Drifting disciples, drifting disciples. So the application for us, in addition to that, not only should we have compassion, but we should also be aware that you and I, like Paul is asking the Galatian believers, we should be aware of who is persuading us. Who are the main voices that are speaking into our life, that are spinning the wheel of how we think? So functionally, there's literal people you can think of that you interact with in real life. Faces you interact with, friends, teachers, maybe pastors, People That are influence over, influential over you, teachers. Who are the people in your life that you know has influence on your life? But in our culture, with our technology, it's much larger, isn't it? The influences upon every one of our lives in this room. I bet not a single one of us, even if you're uh, spouses, not a single one of us have the exact same influences because of the wonders of technology. There is a wealth of people that are pouring into our lives. A Nielsen study done late last year, mid-late last year, found that the average American spends 11 hours a day consuming media. It's over 75 hours a week that we spend either on computer or television or some kind of screen time that we're consuming media. 75 plus hours. Who's writing the scripts? Who's writing the lyrics? Who's who's producing the Producing the information that we find is a hook that sinks itself into us that we we begin liking, but then all of a sudden, as time goes by, we put our guards down. Like Facebook is infamous for this. It won't take but a few thumb scrolls through the page to find something where there's a guy on a stage speaking, and he sounds so persuasive, and they hit the music at the right time, they edit the camera really cool, so it sounds really looks really attractive, and then you subscribe or you begin to listen. And as time goes by, because you've put your guard down, you find yourself being persuaded of things you thought, I I never thought I would think something like this. Or people around your life say, what? What's going on? Bewitched. It's in our culture. Books are the same idea. I decided to get on Amazon and I searched through the, the best Christian sellers, the top 100 list. Starting with number one, I went through the list. And the very first book that I came to that I would completely comfortably recommend to you was number 62, number 62, and that was the Jesus Storybook Bible for kids, right? I'm serious. That was the first one that I could say with a clear conscience, you know, I I could definitely say, hey, take that, read that, teach that. We have to be aware, regardless of what section it's in, regardless of what they say, we must be discerning or we too may find ourselves persuaded and bewitched. The second type of questions that we're called to ask drifting disciples is ask questions that cause them to recall when they first understood the gospel. Ask questions that cause them to recall when they first understood the gospel. Pick it up in verse 1. Read through verse 2. It says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith. I want you to turn over in your Bibles, keep this bookmarked, but flip back a little bit towards the beginning to Acts, Acts chapter 11, because I want to go to what's recorded. It's actually recorded for us. This is really neat. Remember, Galatia is the region. Antioch is one of the cities there. It's recorded for us the actual testimony, the documentary of this church actually receiving the gospel. These people who are Gentile in background, Greek in background, so there's Jew and Gentile, we get this picture of how the gospel ends up actually traveling there. And we actually see how they actually receive it. So it would be like if we could time warp back 2,000 years and we could ask one of these Galatians, one of these people that live in Antioch, hey, what's your testimony? This would be the turning point testimony. Here's the, here's the plot twist. We get to read it. It's right here in our Bibles. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 is where we're going to pick it up at. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. says this, now, and remember the gospel's being poured out from Jerusalem. It's slowly making its way out, geographically spreading, going to new areas. It says in verse 19, now, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Verse 20, as some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people did what? Believed and turned to the Lord. Did a great number of people begin to practice circumcision and the Old Testament laws for the national Israel? Is that what it says? What did they do when the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? What did they do when they heard it? They did what? They believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw that the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to do what? To start practicing the laws of Moses? Is that what he encouraged them to do? What did he do? Catch this. To remain, He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Ask questions that cause them to recall when they first understood the gospel. He takes them back to the beginnings. And in doing this, he's pointing out you received the word of the Lord by faith. You received the gospel by faith. So don't think that you can add to it and become something else. You can't. You received the gospel by faith alone in Christ alone. When Barnabas came to you, he didn't tell you begin to practice the Old Testament laws so that you can really become a Christian, so that you can actually be accepted into fellowship in the congregation. They were already right with the Lord, and what Barnabas did when he came to check it out is said, keep doing what you're doing, build your life on the gospel. That's what we have to remember and remind each other of and seeing every week and hear every week from the word of God that you and I will never mature past the gospel Christian grows in the same seed that is planted with. We stay on the gospel. We blossom in the gospel. We're watered in the gospel. We keep growing in the gospel. And every day is a new opportunity to apply and demonstrate the gospel to every one of our unique lives. Not a single one of us lives an identical day. And every single day is an opportunity of God to live out and demonstrate the faithfulness of the gospel, to point other people to know Jesus to endure hardships and sufferings and heartaches and temptations and trials and to point others then to Jesus who is our foundation and our strength. He is the one we live for. That is the opportunity of the gospel. We never mature past the gospel. But listen, just like in Galatia, the church was enticed by these Judaizers. The church was being enticed to think there was something more maybe I'm not quite doing it right. Maybe if we follow the laws of Moses, then we'll really be Christians. We're JV Christians now. If we really take the law of Moses, we'll be on the varsity team. We'll be accepted. That same danger exists today, as real as ever. Maybe not following the laws of Moses but certainly following the laws of man. We never mature past the gospel. Any belief system, any person that comes and says, yeah, you're right with God, but you'll be really right with God. You'll really get it if you fill in the blank. What happens is they present a picture of classes of Christians. You're here, but boy, if you were able to do this like we can, then you got it. There's something inside of us in our flesh that hungers for that, isn't it? Don't we desire a box to check? Seminary was great, but I didn't begin glowing. I have a degree that's called a master of divinity. That's like the cockiest name of all time. Master of I started glowing. It was incredible. When I got my last degree, it was amazing. I started levitating. It was unbelievable, right? Incredible. The diploma they got, if I scratch and sniff it, I actually smell the word of the Lord, and he tells me what to do. Right? of course not but how foolish beware of the pastor beware of the person that says and acts like they have a special phone to go to God and God tells them everything and so you do what they say what a danger here's the authority here's how we hear from God in the word of God we live by the word of God and we obey the spirit who has inspired the word of God and he convicts us and he comforts us and we walk in our life our daily ordinary lives the goodness of the gospel in our relationships and our responsibilities, but be aware that you and I can easily be enticed to believe there's something maybe we're missing. And we think if we add it to the gospel, then I'll really get it. Instead of daily faithfulness in the Lord, faithfulness to his word through all of life for the glory of God. These are the types of questions that we ask. Ask questions that cause them to recall when they first understood the gospel. And thirdly, in 3 through 5, Ask questions that call out foolish arguments. Ask questions that call out foolish arguments. Verse 3 through 5. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's bringing them back to the very beginning. And Paul's point, again, is related to the previous question we had. You didn't receive the gospel and be declared righteous before God. Do you realize this? If you've trusted in Christ, if you've turned from sin and self, repented and placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you're not made savable, you're saved. If you've given your life to Christ, the Lord has declared you righteous before Him. You are His. You've received the Spirit of God at your conversion. You've been adopted. You've been made right in Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. There is now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. He's your hope. You have access to the Lord. We've been saved to do works for the glory of God, but the works that we do do not make us believers. That makes sense. Let me say that again. You can't miss this point. You can't miss this. The things that we do as those who have been adopted by faith in Jesus were made believers at faith in Christ. The life we live by the Spirit, we do works for the glory of God. We share the gospel. We live the gospel. We trust Christ. We worship the King. We make disciples. Those things are good and of God, but those things aren't what make you a Christian. It's the gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's our identity. It's our family identity as the people of God. And we're called to live out of that reality and do the things under the power of the Spirit in our lives. What Paul tells the church in Galatia is Are you acting like the actual gospel that you began in is actually vanity? And he asked a question like it's a rhetorical one Was it really in vain? Well, the answer would obviously be, they would say, well, no, it wasn't in vain. He says, all those experiences you had, almost every translation takes that as sufferings. It can also be understood, the NIV takes that as experiences. All the experiences you had, painful, difficult, uncomfortable, suffering for the gospel, and even the good things, the miracles done among you, the amazing things, all of that, you're abandoning the gospel and you're treating it like that itself was vanity, The altar of Ecclesiastes gives us that word, this enigma, this blowing away like a tumbleweed in the wind. That's how you're treating the gospel, is how he presents it to the church in Galatia. He identifies the foolishness of the arguments. You and I as believers are called to do exactly that, to unashamedly expose foolish arguments. And we do so ultimately joyfully and selflessly and humbly, not like Mean people, right? You know the difference, right? You've experienced, you know it when you see it. Mmm, that's not how that should be done. But that's no excuse to not destroy foolish arguments. Paul says himself in 2 Corinthians ten four through 5 For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive, to obey Christ. You and I are called in our life to unashamedly call out foolish arguments. This is our responsibility to love one another enough to rebuke one another. I'll give you a reference. I won't give you time to look there, but Psalm 119, 21. Psalm 119, 21. In this incredibly long chapter, incredibly rich chapter on the word, he says, you, God, rebuke the arrogant, accused ones who wander from your commandments. That's what we're supposed to do for one another, to unashamedly confront false, foolish arguments for the glory of God. And here's what will happen. Here's what will happen. I want you to know on the front end, you know this already, actually, but I want to give you an example of what will happen if you begin to point out people that you love, disciples who are drifting from the gospel. If you point out their foolish argument, it will be like you're a parent, but you're also a police officer. And your child, you've come to the scene and they've committed a crime. And what they've stolen is right there in their hands. They have the money in their hands and they're going that way. And you yell at them from behind, FREEZE! You love them, you care for them. But in that exact moment, they have a choice. Either A, they surrender, they release it, they turn around back to where they belong and who they belong with. Or B, they will run as fast and hard as they possibly can in that same direction they were pointing. But just like somebody who's going to run right into that wall as hard as they can, they're going to hit the ground. All you're doing is speeding up the process or by God's grace leading them to repentance and to a loving of the truth like the prodigal child running to the mud sometime God's judgment upon us and because of his love for us is to give us over to the things we actually think we really love the book of judges says it like that there was no everything was done that was right in their own eyes they did what was right in their own eyes And they end up in destruction. Sometimes, and many of you have this testimony, God gave you over for a season to live your life how you wanted to live it, even though you were already his. And it ended up running face first into a wall and coming back. Because we love one another as disciples of Jesus Christ, as a part of this congregation, when we see others drifting, we must love them enough to say, I love you, so freeze knowing that the reality is is that they may run faster than they've ever run before. But God can even use it when they run. Ask questions. Expose foolishness. And fourthly, ask questions that check if they still believe the seamless story of redemption. Ask questions that check if they still believe the seamless story of redemption. Verse 6 or 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness... Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, you don't need to flip over there because Paul is kind enough to us to quote it for us. If you have your Bible, by the way, you'll notice a little footnote probably where he's quoting that. If you have your smartphone, you click on that little number or letter there and it'll pop up, Genesis 15.6. So I am going to give you some references I want you to write down. I won't give you time to flip to them, but that's Genesis 15.6 that he quotes there in verse 6. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And here's what's happening. The church in Galatia has misunderstood the redemption story. This one united story, this thread of redemption. That we are made right with God by faith in God. The gift of God, the promises of God found in Christ. They misunderstand the story. So look what he does. Genesis 15, 6. We just had it. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham did what? He believed God. Abraham did what? He believed God. Third time's a charm. Abraham did what? Believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. He believed him. He placed his trust in him, and God counted him as righteous. So here's what you're going to write down, Genesis chapter 17. In that scene, if you remember, God tells Abraham to circumcise his son. So, is Abraham made right with God by circumcising his son? No. Genesis 15, the chronology, Abraham did what? Believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, test one passed. Application one passed. Test two, Genesis 22. This incredible scene. Genesis 22. God tells Abraham to go up to the mountain and sacrifice his one and only son Isaac that he and Sarah had. What an incredible demonstration of faith. But is Abraham declared to be righteous at the mountain? No. When was Abraham declared right with God? Genesis 15, when he believed God. The church in Galatia is getting the story confused. They're biting a hook that says maybe it was at the laws of Israel that would be given later to Moses. Maybe it was by circumcision. Maybe it was by one of these elements that made them right with God or more right with God. They misunderstand the thread of the story. We today are blessed by God through the promised seed of Abraham. By faith we're made right with God that no one may boast. That's our hope. That's the goodness we have. That's our confidence before God. It's not in what we've done. Have you ever presented a group project and you were the person that did great, but you knew your group members did nothing? And when it's their turn to present, what are you thinking? Oh boy. What about the opposite? Do you ever do a group project where you're the one that was slacking? And it was your turn and you just bite the bullet and go for it. We are not made right with God by those things. We are made right with God by faith alone. We are blessed to the promised seed of Abraham, that is Jesus. God has chosen a people, Israel. In Israel, his people ultimately have a descendant that comes from a particular line. The law is given to distinguish the people from all the pagan nations. And it's through that particular line that comes the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. That's Jesus Who keeps all the demands of the law? There's this one that comes, this king, this David, that God says there will be one on his throne that will rule forever, and that's Jesus. And we are made right with God through this seed, this promised seed of Abraham. And Abraham was made right with God, righteous by what? By belief. You and I are made right with God by what? Belief in the works and the person of Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Now, that's not to negate the reality of God's future work that he'll have with ethnic Israel. As a great multitude will come to faith in Christ when all of us who are Gentiles have ultimately come in. Romans 9 through 11. The Lord is at work. The story of Scripture, if we know it well, will protect us from a multitude of drifting. And here's the deal. None of us will ever reach a point in our life where we can say, I know it well enough. I know it well enough. That word enough should be banished from our vocabulary. We can never know the Word of God well enough. Forever knowing the story of Scripture, forever pouring our life into the story of Scripture, this is our calling. This is who we're we're called to be in all of our lives. There is no other hope for us to be a people of the book. This is who we are. And here's what will happen. If we give up the story of Scripture, we will find ourselves trying to justify ourselves before other people based upon something that we do. And we will be forced into pride. We will be forced into judgment. The story of Scripture, if we know it well, as we continue to know it well, will continue to shape our lives as we're Romans 12, being renewed, being transformed by the renewal of our minds. If we love one another, church, we will never cease to push each other to know and to love and to apply the Word of God for the glory of God. Never enough. Never enough. Ask questions that reveal how well somebody understands the story of redemption, the seamless, beautiful story. Every week we answer ultimately, did I lose myself in the story of Scripture Or did I lose my appetite for Scripture? Every week, that becomes a point of conviction, not to shame us, but to challenge us. Lord, I want to know you and your Word. If you're not very, uh, if reading is not your strong suit, you can get online, you can audio, you can listen to the Bible. Grow in the Word. Celebrate the Word. Swim in the Word. As has been said before, the Scripture is so deep that an elephant can drown but it's shallow enough that a child can play. Play in the scripture this week. Ask questions that reveal their understanding of the Word of God. And fifthly, ask questions that confirm if Scripture is still their final authority. Ask questions that confirm if Scripture is still their final authority. Verse 8 and 9. And the Scripture, this is fascinating text, by the way. In the Scripture. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed among with Abraham, the man of faith. The scripture is Paul and the Galatians' common final authority. Ask questions that reveal what somebody's final authority is. Not an authority, but their final authority. All of us have a final authority. Look what it says. In the Scripture, this is incredible. For seeing that God, it speaks of it like the Word of God is this living and active thing. It speaks of it like it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It speaks of Scripture like it's God-breathed and sufficient to train up a person to live out the Word of God. Because the Bible is living and active. It uses this unique language in the Scripture for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles. What is your final authority in life? Not an authority in life. What is your final authority in life? Every disciple has the Bible as their final authority. So ask questions If you were sleeping, now is the time to wake up. This question will reveal where any conversation goes. Every question falls down to what is your final authority? And here's how we can tell. If the Scripture is not our final authority for discerning and judging through the world, the world will be our lens by which we judge the Scripture. We're a church that encourages questions. If you have questions about the preservation, the nature, the goodness of the Word of God, but realize the key to recognizing if somebody is drifting is if we give up the Scripture as our final authority, where we parse out the Scripture and say, I do not like that part, not true. Every one of us is susceptible to it, but never underestimate the power of the Word of God to transform your life, to impact your marriage to impact your kids' lives. The Word of God is living and active, and it is sufficient to be your final authority for all of life. In the 1600s, there was a Puritan named John Flavel. He traveled around in England, preached, wrote, incredible man. He was in the southern town in England called Dartmouth, a small town. There was a young boy who was a teenager that went to church that day as an unbeliever. He did not believe in Christ. He came and he sat under one of the greatest preachers in all of England, John Flavel, and he walked out that day an unbeliever. Not impacted, not surrendering to the Word of God. Shortly after, he would get on a boat and he would travel to New England where he would ultimately become a farmer. He was blessed with incredible success as a farmer. had a gigantic farm, gigantic estate. The Lord also blessed him with many years of life. At 103 years old, he sat and he looked out over his estate and he reflected over his life and he remembered the sermon that he heard by John Flavel over 85 years earlier. And he couldn't shake in his mind this man's preaching from the word of God that spoke that day about the wrath and judgment of God that abides on anybody that is not his. And at 103 years old, this man, Luke short, gave his life to Christ. Three years later, he would die at 106. And on his tombstone was an epitaph that said this, He lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. Here here dies, here rests a babe, a little baby, only three years old, in grace, but who died of natural causes at 106. Never underestimate what the Word of God will do over decades. Don't measure in days what God is doing over decades. Parents, I hope that encourages you. Spouses that have been praying for your spouses for years, I hope that encourages you. Students that wrestle with frustration in your life, I hope that encourages you. Never underestimate what the Word of God will do in our life. Ask questions that reveal the power of Scripture, the final authority. as Our next steps take place. I've phrased them down into this question. Is there someone in my life that is drifting away from the fellowship of a local disciple-making church? The answer for you and I is yes, right? Yes, there is, all of us. The question is, how will I pursue them this week? How will I pursue them this week? How will I pursue them this week? This is the challenge of the word. The word of God doesn't allow us to sit still and walk out and simply say, That was a nice sermon, if you're being generous to me, right? If you think it's terrible, keep it to yourself. I don't want to hear it. Just kidding. The word of God doesn't let us sit. The word of God makes us go. Pray, Lord, is there somebody in my life that I know is drifting or has drifted away from the gospel that I know you want me to talk to? I know you want me to reach out to? I know you want me to write this week. Pursue them. Pursue them. This is our job, church. This is our calling. It's very possible that you're here this morning and you are one of those drifters. That by God's grace, you drifted into church, so your heart is drifting away from the word of God. We thank you for being here. We love you. We love your relationship with the Lord. He loves you more than we do. He loves you more than you do. And he is worthy of bidding your life over to. Come back to the king. Freeze. And surrender to the one who is worthy of your life. The song that we're going to stand and sing together. I hope that this will become your prayer. I know for me, this has been Echoing in my mind all week. Lord, make this song that we're going to sing my prayer in my life for you. Would you stand with me as we sing in response to the preached word of God?